right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Good job. You know, it's a cold fall Sunday morning, and you made it here. We know who didn't have Halloween parties last night. That's why we know who's here at the 9 a.m. service, so it's great to, to be with you. Um, okay, so in the announcements, of course, leave it to kids' ministry. I don't you pick up on it. Devin said it's never too early to start watching the movie Elf. So here, here's a question for you. Just when, when is it okay to start listening to Christmas music? That's a big question because it's, you know, today's kind of always feels like the beginning of a holiday barrage. So how many of you, it's like tomorrow is Christmas music time? Oh, only one in this whole room. Okay. How many have to, it has to be at least Thanksgiving. Okay. How many have already been listening? Come on. Uh, just own up. Let us know. Okay, the same one who said it's not too early. Yeah, okay. Got it. How many of you like, why do we even listen to Christmas music? Anyone? You can say it even in church. Take the mask off. It's, it's all right. Okay, that's all right. So, well, it's good to be here with you today. We are in our series called Family Stories. We're going back to the book of Acts. I want to invite you today. We're going to open up and uh, explore in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 24. We'll get there in a moment. But before we do, would you just pray with me as we get started? God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for uh, your goodness. We thank you uh, for the joy of being together with family. We thank you that we can start our weeks off by um, processing and thinking about you. And so, Lord, now as we look into your word, I pray that these ancient words would transform and change our hearts, that they wouldn't be some archaic stories that just uh, make us feel better, but, Lord, that they would be words that bring life. So let your words be mine today as we speak. As I teach, let them be your words, transform and change me as we go through this text. We thank you and give you this time. In your name, amen. I want to ask you a question to think about for a moment. And you don't have to answer this out loud, but just kind of think through for you. What in life is your greatest fear? What is the thing, and I'm not talking about like spiders or something like that or, or clowns or, you know, the terrifying things of the world, but like what are... What is something that brings, that you fear, that keeps you up at night? The things that cause you to maybe feel like it's hard to have hope. It's hard to believe in a God when these fears are there. So today we're going to look at a text that on the surface seems like this kind of just interesting story, some a little bit of comical story uh, and, and at times, and this epic story of, of just this almost feels like a battle between different beliefs, but at the core of it, what we're going to see is the heart of kind of the human condition, and what's driving them is this fear, and, and, and my guess is today as we double-click down and kind of look at this story, I think we may find ourselves in the story. And maybe in an unexpected place. And so today as we address this, what we want to do is then find how does God meet us in the middle of these fears that maybe sometimes drive our worldview, even in ways that we don't understand or aren't aware of. So that's where we're going to go today, and we're going to just jump right in. So let's go to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to pick it up, sorry, in verse 23 is where we're going to start. 
And just so you know, we are in a, in a city called Ephesus. And our last story, the last time we were here, there was this kind of epic encounter between uh, some, some people who were trying to, uh, you could say, dabble in the spirit world, and they were trying to cast out this demon, but they didn't even know, they didn't know Jesus, and they called out and said, we're going to use the name of Jesus, and, and this just crazy encounter where this person who had this demon all of a sudden said, I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but we have no idea who you are, and it came upon these people, and the whole community was filled with fear of the name of Jesus, where they said, wow, don't mess with the power of this Lord, and after that, they took all their, this was a town that they were into magic and and incantations and stuff, so they took all these scrolls and all these spell books and things, and they burned them all. And so we're picking up the story today right after we see the town of Ephesus just burned what was called 50,000, the equivalent to 50,000 people's one-day wages. So think of the wealth that was burned in one day. And that is where we are now. Pick up the story in Acts chapter 19, verse 23. It says this, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. And I want you to kind of maybe underline the way if you like to take notes. We'll come back to that. The way essentially was the description for the way Christians lived. So talking about Christians. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called all the craftsmen together, along with the workers and related trades, and said, You know, my friends that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So let's just pull up here for a moment and see where we're at. So we have this guy, Demetrius. He makes, he's a silversmith. Uh, he's making shrines or figurines to the goddess Artemis. Uh, and, and by way of reminder for those who maybe weren't here, um, Artemis, the temple to Artemis was built here in Ephesus, and it was kind of central to their identity. We'll look at that a little in a moment. But part of it is they made these um, figurines, these shrines to Artemis, and this was different than Artemis was worshipped throughout the Greco-Roman world, but in Ephesus in particular, there was a unique uh, image of Artemis in a way that they worshipped, and the temple was larger than anywhere else. They based and rooted their lives on the worship of Artemis here. And, and so even archaeologists have discovered and found some of these shrines and some of these figurines. So we want to go ahead and show that first photo. So this is what they're talking about. These are some of the shrines and figurines found. Some of these um, would be made in, as you can see, some of them are marble or alabaster. You have even, um, they were made out of silver as well. And so this was the images, and this is a particular to Ephesus. So these were found in Ephesus. This is the way Artemis was depicted there, and these were small figurines. You would take them, you'd put them in your house, and uh, kind of pray to Artemis and ask for her protection. Now, she particularly was the goddess of the hunt, and so in other cultures was always depicted with a bow and with like an animal by her side. 
But here in Ephesus, they focus on fertility, and they focus on uh, not only for your crops, but also for childbirth. And so that was the goddess Artemis that was worshipped here. Now, uh, next slide, go ahead and show the next one. This will show you, this is the um, artist's rendering of what the temple in Ephesus would have looked like at the time. To put this into perspective, that temple is about the size, it's actually a little larger than a football field. So if you can think of the massive size of this temple, it's gigantic. Uh, And they base that on the foundations, and they can see where some of the pillars were built. And so that's kind of how um, archaeologists would then depict this is what it probably looked like and the size. Um, To this day, there's only one pillar left remaining in the site. A lot of it had been pillaged and used for different uh, buildings throughout the years. And, um, but there's one pillar left. Now, uh, again, it's the size of a football field, and it stood about 60 feet tall. So consider how high each of those, each pillar was 18 meters. So if you put that into perspective, the, the enormity of that. So this is what is central to their understanding and to their identity there in Ephesus. So when Demetrius comes and says, hey, listen, we make these figurines, we worship this this goddess, this is the temple that was standing at the time. Those are the figurines that they built at the time. So this is a real time, a real place, a real story. And we'll come back to in a minute what his concerns were. So let's go back into the story. So that kind of gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Verse 28. When all the craftsmen heard this, what Demetrius said, they were furious and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. Most people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. They shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. They were shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine shouting that for two hours? Some of you complain that modern-day worship songs keep repeating themselves. None of them are only seven words for two hours, okay? You should be grateful. (laughs) For two hours, the crowds were shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and do nothing rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed the temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and, and further there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened here today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there's no reason for it at all. 
And he said this, and he dismissed the assembly. And they all left. <laughs> kind of an anticlimactic ending to a story. When I'm hearing biblical stories, I'm waiting for like fire from heaven to come down or God to show up in some big, miraculous way. And it ends with some guy standing up and reasoning with them and telling the crowd to go home. Now, to paint a bigger picture of, again, the story, uh, it's in a city of Ephesus. About the time of Paul, of this writing, was 200,000 people is what they believe. Uh, the next image here will give you, a, 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 again, a rendering, a depiction. Go ahead and get that next slide of what Ephesus likely looked like um, at the time. And again, this is based on excavations, and there is you know, some fill in the blank, but that would be the size of, of 200,000. And you can see far to your left, that giant square there would be the temple to Artemis, so for context of where that is. And then kind of right in the middle, you see a theater, a coliseum. That fits 24,000 people. So, uh, and then the, the other squares right near there were the, the agora, were the central area where all the shopping and commerce would take place. So, Anything that happened in the city really would happen in one of those empty squares. That was where all of the, the shopping, commerce, the marketplace took place. By the way, this city of Ephesus um, was written, uh, the John, the disciple John, spent most of his time here. And the book of Revelation, when it was written, was written uh, and referencing some of what was happening in Ephesus to that time. To enter the Agora, this is side note, at the time of John, you had to pay tribute to the emperor Domitian, and some even had it, it was, you had to receive a mark that allowed you to buy and sell in the marketplace there. So this is, he's using this imagery to paint the picture even of a future of what's happening. It's a, scripture is often a now and a not yet. So this is Ephesus that's happening. That's a theater. So uh, next slide. This is the remains of the theater at, that's to this day. And again, 24,000 people can fit in there. Uh, the next slide will show you the artist's rendering of what this likely looked like at the time of Paul. Again, they use bright colors throughout Ephesus. We have all the evidence of it still today. There's murals and things. So this is probably the, the actual, this looks very close to what this scene looks like now of this story we're reading. Imagine this now is filled in with 24,000 people and they're shouting and up on the stage there's a group of, there's a couple Christians and there's this guy named Alexander who we don't know much about. Paul mentions in Alexander a couple times in his letters, usually not in very positive terms um, and, and is someone who has betrayed Paul so perhaps it's the same person. But picture this scene. This is packed with people. They started seeing everyone rushing in from the marketplace, shouting, Artemis the Great, great is Artemis. So they go in there, and now it's just this spontaneous, two-hour-long worship session going on. Chaos. Even some said, we don't even know what we're shouting about, but we're shouting. Some are there in the mob. And before we get too judgy, let's just say that us as people are not much different with mob mentality than we were ever before, right? There's something about a crowd. 
Just go to a sports game and you'll see. I remember one time I was at, back in the day, the Seattle Mariners, the very first time they made it to the playoffs. They won, they beat the Yankees in game five of the playoff series. It was a walk-off hit by Edgar Martinez. Ken Griffey Jr. scored from first. Remember it well. So, such a great moment. And I remember like two hours after the game, we were still in the streets screaming and hugging people I've never seen before. Like, man, I love you. This is great. This mob mentality that can take over in your emotions. That's what's happening here. And they're shouting. and It all started because a great disturbance was happening because of the way. The way. See, Christianity started to become known as the way. In fact, one pastor said this, for Christians, church was not a moment, it was a movement. It wasn't something that just happened on a Sunday morning. It wasn't just a one time, you know, one hour a week of studying scripture. It wasn't just about the life group, but it wasn't a moment, but it was a movement. It was the way. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. This is a whole different way of living, and the Christians were living in the way, and it was changing how they did commerce. It was changing how they interacted between the the, uh, different societal structures, and it was changing everything about them, and there was a great disturbance because of them. A great disturbance. And Demetrius felt it because he had just seen 50,000 days wages burned of figurines and magic books and all kinds of things that were part of his livelihood. And he said, this is because of the way. These Christians are changing the way they live. And it's changing our world. So he brings up a dispute against them. I want you to notice that dispute that he says. Let's jump back now. We're back in to verse 27. He said there's three things that he was compl- worried about. One was there's danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, so we're worried about his good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who's worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, when I look at that, I think, man, that, the judgy me jumps in right away. And says, oh, is that the goddess you serve, that you're afraid that she's going to be robbed of her divine majesty? Like, so, shouldn't that be a clue? That you shouldn't put, bank your hope on her if seriously there's a few people called part of the way and your goddess is no longer going to be divine? Like, so that's the, that's the Ryan who wants to go in and say, like, let's have a debate. I will destroy you. <laughs> and that I wouldn't be wrong on a lot of that. But as our teaching team was studying this passage, what we really asked is what is actually beneath the surface? The question here is actually, what is the core fear that's going on? What was the bigger issue at play with Demetrius and the crowds? Those who were so proud of Ephesus. 
Ephesus being a place that had the one of seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple, the Artemis. What, was there something bigger going on there? And I believe their core fear was wrapped up in this. It was an insecurity about the future, or even I would say this, it was a fear of not being able to control the future, the fear of not being in control. And as we talked about that as a team, and we were thinking about that, is it's interesting that really at the core of a lot of our fears, as we look at in the world, is this sense of we don't have control. And that's a scary place to be, is it not? I mean, when you don't have, I mean, maybe if you're just like, when I was a single guy and it was just me and, and just living my life, like, there, there was less to fear. You know, I would jump off of stupid cliffs when I was on snow skis, it wasn't just like, I'm going to jump off a cliff. It was, it was fun for us. You know, you go down the, it, it was, there was no fear in that. I remember one time I was wakeboarding and I was trying to learn how to land this backflip. And I literally landed on my head like 25 times that same day, which if I did that once today, I'd be like, I'll come back in three weeks, you know. But I, I just remember like there was, no, what the fear? Who cares? It was my life, whatever. But then all of a sudden you get married and then you think, oh. Am I caring for my wife now? Am I protecting her? What will our future look like? Then you have kids. You want to know fear. You just have to have kids. You bring them home. And you say, I've never changed a diaper in my life. <laughs> and then you find out all these things about them. Oh, if they sleep this way, they, sometimes they don't make it through the night. And if they eat this, they might, you know, all of a sudden it's just this list of fears that you didn't even know were real. Are all of a sudden that people tell you like, oh, are you watch, watching out for that? And the fear with how will they do in school? I never really worried about their, their grades, but I always worried about, will they have friends? <laughs> are they ever going to be rejected? What if a girl breaks up with them? She doesn't know what she's missing. Things I can't control are really hard. Chapman University has a, a whole department that studies fear in people. Uh, they just released their newest survey that was taken during 2020. You can imagine how that's a little different than the previous years of what the fears were. On the top of their list were politicians. <laughs> Pandemic made their top 10. Biological warfare made their top 10. Never been there before. In fact, the year prior, number 48 on the list was a, a global pandemic. I, I'm telling you, I tell you this, before 2020, I didn't even, other than watching a few movies, didn't even know there was a global pandemic, okay? I didn't know that would be an option. Um, I think I had more fear of the zombie apocalypse than, than a global pandemic, which is probably on that list higher than that, but so all of a sudden that's top 10. So you can see our fears are totally different because what can we control? Also, all throughout their list are things about the environment and the future and climate and all of that is riddled through the top 50. Things we can't control. Loss of life for a loved one. Health. Demetrius is really addressing some things that I think that we all kind of struggle with. And I want to show you his three complaints, and I want to kind of extract some ideas from those, because I believe now let's make it real for us. Because anyone in here afraid of Artemis' temple falling? No, I don't think so. But what are the fears? So the first one is this, I think. He had a fear of provision. 
He was dealing with provision. provision. Our bigger question is, am I going to be okay? Notice what he said. Hey, if this Christian thing continues to take off, our trade, our good name, we're going to lose our good name. Now, do you think he really cared? Like, I want to stand up for the silversmiths across the world that everyone knows this is a great profession. Or was it, hey, if we don't have a good reputation, people won't do business with us, and they don't do business with us, we don't have money, we cannot provide. Ultimately, his argument came down to finances, because right before that, he said, we make a lot of money off this. The core of a lot of our fears in life for us is this provision. Are we going to be okay? How are we going to make it through another day? Will my kids have enough? Will I have enough for retirement? Where will I live? How will I pay for college? How am I going to get the new Apple Watch? All of these questions. Some of you are like, that's not funny. I was wondering that. Next one is this. Prestige. Or I think it this way. Does my life matter? See, he said, what, what if, okay, so we might lose our good name, but also Artemis and her temple will be discredited. It will fall into disrepair. Now, why does that matter to them? See, Ephesus in particular built this temple, and they built it with their own means. In fact, uh, they had the original temple. It was destroyed uh, from an earthquake once, rebuilt, destroyed by fire by an arsonist, and then they started rebuilding it again, and um, Alexander the Great said, hey, I love this. I will rebuild it for you. Let me help pay for it. Let's get this thing done, and the Ephesians said, no, this is our temple. This is our name because Alexander wanted his name on it. They said, this is about us and our legacy, our legacy, our prestige, So they built it themselves, and so their reputation in the world was, we housed the greatest temple to Artemis in the world. That was what they were known for, and they banked their reputation on it, and Demetrius was saying, hey, if this temple, if too many people follow Jesus, and all of a sudden they're no longer going to the temple, and this temple falls apart once again, what will we be known for? What is our purpose? Does our life even matter beyond the grave? anyone remember us? It's a core of a lot of our thoughts. The next one is this, is power. And when I say power, I mean the question of, do I have what it takes? Notice what they say. Not only will Artemis and her temple fall into disrepair, but she'll be stripped of her divine majesty. We'll no longer have the goddess to watch over us, to provide for our crops, to provide for our childbirth. Where will we turn for our strength without her? Do we have what it takes to get what we need in this world? Now, that might be generalizing and extracting some, but I believe that that's a core of a lot of things we think about. And you see that much of our fears in life are based on the arguments that we've built or hung on to to give our life security. The things that we think, well, I just need this. And what we want to do is help to transfer our fears to trust that God and the truth that will set you free. And there's a cool little parallel to this in Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 1 is a letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And in this, he writes a prayer for them. And the prayer, I'm going to put it on the, on the screen for you. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. It says this. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling. You'll know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards those of us who believe. Now, in this prayer, and it continues on, but in this prayer, I want to focus on, there's three things that he points out. The next one, let's go back to that and look at the first thing he says. I pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you will know, the first thing is this, the hope of his calling. You may know the hope of his calling. This is, you could say, in direct contrast to the fears Demetrius had of provision, of, wait, am I going to be okay? Paul says, I pray that you may have hope in the calling that you've received in Christ. You could think of it this way, it's a new way of trusting. So you think about in our lives of Christ, we have this, we're called, this calling is a new way of trusting. We're now called to trust in the provision of God, to trust that God the Father actually loves you. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, he said, look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air. God provides for them, and does he not care for you more than all of those? So therefore, don't have to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. But today, trust. You're invited to this new way, this living this life in Christ. And in this now, your trust is in God as your provider. And again, as we talked about before, the difficult thing is, it's hard to trust when it comes to the people in my life that I love. It's hard to trust God with the things that I have and say, you're my provider, and, and, but let me hold a little aside because I have to also make sure I'm providing for others. Now, I'm not saying don't save, don't plan for the future. All of that is important, but it's really easy to start to play God. And, to, and when we're called into a life of generosity, we're called into a life of love, even freely loving others, putting yourself out there, it takes risk. And do we trust that God, as our Father, can provide everything we need? Now, when I talk about provision, I do believe that God provides for us. And I think one of the ways he provides for us sometimes is to change our mind on what we need. I think when we talk about God's provision, often we think about what God wants, what we want, not what we need. Now, there is also a biblical truth. I just want to say this. There's a biblical truth. Paul writes about it. It says, hey, if you don't work, don't be surprised if you go hungry. <laughs> there, he actually says, God will provide through you by giving you some means to care for yourself. But, so when I think about provision in Scripture, and God says, hey, trust, as you invited into a new way of life, a new way of generosity, a new way of giving up of yourself, you trust that the Father will still give you what you need. And I believe that to be true. I remember when Sarah and I, uh, we first, we took, when I first took my real big boy job, you know, health benefits and everything, it was, you know, the big step, and uh, we, we owned a townhome, we sold this townhome and bought a, a new house in Mission Viejo, this was a long time ago, um, and it was like $230,000, um, we should have bought like 10 of them at the time, but so moved into it. And I remember in Mission Viejo, Orange County, it's a really nice place, and someone came over to our house um, that Sarah had met in the MOPS group. We were new parents, new job, and she saw our house, and our house was a whole 980 square feet. So it was this, you know, giant, we were like living large in that one, is how we felt. And we're in this house in a, a nice neighborhood, and she came over and goes, oh, these houses are cute. And I, remember, I still remember the conversation I overheard said, yeah, we looked at these, but they were just a little, 
uh, and she was trying to say it nicely, like, not right for our family, just a little too small. And, 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 and the word was, but they're cute. And I remember kind of thinking that, like, kind of wrestling with that, is, is that, but we have everything we need. Now, granted, if we had three grown teenage boys in that house, there'd be days when you think, like, yeah, this house is cute. Uh, <laughs> but even that, I had a friend in high school when I first became a Christian. They had a small house. They had three kids. And I'll never forget the words a dad said to me once. He said, we don't have a great house, but we have a great home. Sometimes I think when God says, I'll provide for you, he changes our perspective, and we start to accept what we need, not what we want. So it's a new way of trusting that God is enough. The next part of the, the prayer here, we see that Paul prays that you would un, uh, fully understand the riches of this glory and the inheritance of the saints. Well, what is that? I believe that is, we now have an eternal perspective. We share in the inheritance of the saints, the riches of his glory, the inheritance of the saints. Do you realize this? I want you to know this. In Christ, you are every bit a part of the family of God as Jesus who sits on his throne in heaven right now. You share in the inheritance of the saints. We are sons and daughters of God, and that cannot be taken away from you. You are as close to God now as you ever will be. I believe we've said in the last few weeks also that reminder that you are as forgiven now as you ever will be. You never need to be more forgiven than you are right now. So even in your failures, even in your weakness, even in your doubts and your shame, you share in the inheritance of the saints. We have an eternal perspective. See, Demetrius was afraid that his legacy wouldn't move on. They're afraid that they, what, what's our purpose? Will our lives matter? We're given now this new eternal perspective with God. Our lives matter not just for here, but beyond the grave. What will we leave behind? The third part of his prayer, he says this, I also want you to know the boundless greatness of his power towards us who believe. The boundless greatness of his power towards us who believe. Another way to think of it is this, an unrivaled power. So when we say, do we have what it takes Remember, Demetrius said, what if Artemis, she's going to be robbed of her divine majesty? In other words, where are we going to turn for our strength, our power, our provision? Who's going to take care of us? Who's going to give us what we need? And Paul prays, may your eyes of your heart be enlightened so you may understand the boundless greatness of his power towards us who believe. Do you get that? The creator God. And by the way, um, have any of you seen how great the temple of Artemis looks these days? How many times have you heard people say, oh, praise goddess Artemis, she's providing what I need. I'm sure there's someone in the world. But look at this, 2,000 years later, billions of people across the globe, as we speak, are worshiping Jesus, trusting in the power, the boundless greatness of the power who believe. That's the family we're begin, that we're a part of. Remember, uh, in college, I, my senior year, I was interning at a junior high school. I was an education major, and I was doing an administrative internship, and I coached uh, in Washington State. They have organized sports, even in junior high, and so I coached the seventh and eighth grade boys baseball team. No surprise, right? So I'm out there coaching, and there was one day, the boys were warming up, and a neighbor came out, and he was in the outfield of the field with his dog. That we didn't have fences, so he was walking his dog out on the outfield, and his dog decided to do his business on our field. Now, if you've ever hung out with seventh and eighth grade boys, 
and they see that on their field, they're not afraid to let him know what he needs to do about it. And they start yelling at him and tell him to take his dog and his dog's stuff with him and get off their field. And, and here's this guy with his dog start to yell back at my kids and start to yell at them and tell them, to, you know, whatever he was telling them. And as a coach, I stepped out and I walked past the kids and I, you know, I told them like, hey, you need to get your dog and your dog's stuff with you and take it and you can't be out here. He yells back. He goes, um, first thing he yelled back was, well, you need to, those kids need to watch their mouths. And what? I'm like, I'll deal with those kids. And they're all just kind of standing behind me. And then he goes, well, take it up with administration. And here I am, all of 21 years old, looking old and mature. I look back at those pictures. I'm like, I look like I was 14. And I'm like, I am the administration. <laughs> and he, he got up, he took his dog, and he left. And I was like, yeah. And the cool, that wasn't the cool part. I heard these eighth grade boys behind me whisper. They were talking to each other, and they said, Mr. Rosenbaum would have kicked that guy's, uh, he'd beat him up. And, and so, and I remember hearing that and being like, yeah, <laughs> that's what they think of me. And walking back, and in my mind, I'm like, I don't think I would have, but okay, that's cool. <laughs> and to me, that was a small picture of that. You kind of have that growing up, my dad can beat up your dad thing. And we have this view of our dad that maybe isn't always accurate. Maybe for some of us it was. But those boys in that moment were like, man, we've, we've got a strong leader in front of us, which I look back still, I just laugh at. Man, if that 21-year-old Ryan said that to me, I'd be like, come on, boy, let's go. <laughs> but that's not our God. The boundless greatness of his power is in the facade. The boundless greatness of greatness of his power for us is everlasting. It's enough to where Paul said, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. There's nothing to fear when I am in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we got to get this. We have to understand that when we look at the fears that we have in this world, that they are done. They're over when we understand who our God is. The temple to Artemis is gone. But the temple of the body of, the whole, of, of Christ who, uh, and the Holy Spirit who dwells, is, dwells among you and on me, among me, and we have been a part of changing the world ever since. And our God is still on his throne, amen? Paul finishes his prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, 21. He says, this Jesus, or God exalted Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who is in all in all. As the worship team starts making their way up, I want us to end our time and just consider this. How do we respond when we look at this? We can respond a couple ways. The one way we can respond is we can leave here arrogant and say, our God is going to beat up your God. And so we're going to go and we're going to fight the world and we're going to see our God destroy them. That's one way. And I believe our God can and I believe ultimately the victory is in the hands of the Lord and we have the ultimate victory. If you need to know, read the whole Bible, get to the end, you'll say, amen, we're okay. But I want to challenge us with one other response. Notice how this story ends. Paul and the disciples dink it up and say, we're going to have a display of whose God is more powerful. No, in fact, the city clerk, who maybe didn't even know about the way, got up and said, it's really our problem. 
These guys haven't blasphemed our God. They haven't robbed the temples. In other words, they're not fighting against us. They're just preaching the name of Jesus. They're exalting this Jesus, and they're not doing anything illegal or wrong. They're, they're lifting up their God, so what are we fighting against? And I wonder if just as Christians, our response and posture, as we don't have to live in fear because we know who our God is, I just wonder if we were known for being for Jesus. We are people part of the way. And no, we don't give in to culture. I don't like what they're teaching in schools. I don't like what the media tells us we're supposed to believe. I don't like that they don't think about Jesus the way I do. But you know what we get to fight for? We get to fight for each other to live the way, to be transformed and changed by Christ in us. And I don't have to go and tear down temples to Artemis. Time takes care of that sometimes. That was the dramatic pause <laughs> What if our hearts, what if the community said, those Christians, they're part of the way. They're generous, they're loving, they're compassionate, they're caring, they're self-sacrificial, living. They care for those of us who are even worshiping gods they don't believe in, but they still love us. They care about us. Man, there's something about those Christians that, I, what do we have against them? And they'll try to find things, but ultimately, at the end of the day, the clerk will get up and say, there's really nothing we can say. And it's something about being not of this world. But not being not of this world doesn't mean we have to fight everything that comes up. Let's live boldly as followers of Jesus. Let's hold to the truth. That's, I'm not saying don't do that. But even a day like this, this is Halloween. People around the world are, some celebrate it, some it's just the costumes and candy and it's a fun event. For some, it's something much darker and sinister. And I, I reject that part of it. But as Christians, what if we redeemed days like this and said, we're going to be part of the way. We have the best candy bars in our neighborhood because all of a sudden, all my non-Christian neighbors are knocking on my door and meeting me. What if we redeemed it? And what if people said, oh, those people of the way, they're call it causing a great disturbance, but it's not because they're fighting. It's because they're loving. Because they stand for something. They're living for eternity that's going to disturb the world. And you know how we can do that? When we fully believe that nothing is greater than our God. Because if we don't believe it, we better fight everything. We better. He needs us. Artemis needed Demetrius because if he didn't do it, who would? We don't have to. Our God is great. So let's live as lives transformed and changed by Jesus. And let's let God be on display in and through us, through our weaknesses, our strengths, through our failures, all of that. Let's proclaim our God and how great is our God who changes a life like mine. So as we end, I want to just invite you, would you stand and stand and let's proclaim the greatness of our God. And let's leave here knowing that we don't have to fear because of who our God is.
We thank you, Lord, for who you are, and we pray now that you would remind us of your, your love, your provision, your eternal purpose. God, we pray that you would just transform and change us and shape us as we turn our hearts to you and who you are. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen.